Welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory, a senior science writer here at TN, and on today's podcast, the first of 2022, we are getting really stuck into it. Okay, a game-changing study that links multiple sclerosis to the herpes virus, discover how mRNA vaccines could be delivered as pills, and we'll even find out how a cocktail of drugs could help frogs regrow lost limbs. To go through all of this, I'm joined by my colleagues Laura Lansdowne and Molly Campbell. How are you both? I'm good, thanks, Rory. How are you? Hi, good, good. And you, Molly? I am great, thank you. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy, Happy New Year. year. <laughs> God, it's felt like a long year already. Just getting into it. Uh, now, while most of opinionated science is about the bizarre, jaw-dropping and world-changing research that science can produce when everything goes right, we're now going to talk in a new segment about those moments when things don't quite go to plan. Now, these are, I think, equally important to science as a whole. Every lab has its tales of moments where fire alarms get set off, samples end up stored up in a beer cooler, or a promising PhD student starts smoking weed in the fume hood. Now, these are the tales which every lab has, but no one really wants to share beyond the, the lab walls. This is a true mythos of science, uh, but one that has to remain on the down low unless we can share it anonymously here. This is Lab Confidential. Each episode, we're going to take the best stories our listeners send in via text or voice note and read them to reveal the secrets of what goes on behind closed doors in your average lab. Now, this week, our first story of Lab Confidential comes in from the monogrammed K. Thank you very much, K, for your submission. So I'll, uh, I'll read out our our first lab confidential. Kay says, when you're doing developmental biology experiments that require you to be in the lab well into the small hours, there are limited options for keeping yourself entertained and awake. A young postdoc and a PhD student found themselves in this very tedious situation whilst waiting to harvest Xenopus embryos at the correct stage of development. That sounds absolutely thrilling, Kay. Now, during this process, they turned their attention to objects around them in the lab that could keep them awake and entertained. And at 9pm, they decided to make some small explosions by adding water to dry ice in 1.5 milliliter centrifuge tubes. Well, that's quite a, an interesting recipe. Just seal them up, wait a minute, and small explosions are ensuing. But it seems like soon after, boredom returns. So by 10pm, Kay's uh, postdoc and PhD student decided to try some old ultra centrifuge tubes, which had cracks in the side, but they were still usable, so they stuffed those full of dry ice. But by 11pm, nothing had happened. It was a waste of time, they thought. Now, CO2 must be leaking out through the cracks in the side of the ultra centrifuge tubes. So our two protagonists chucked them in the bin and thought no more of it. So they went back to building tip box towers and making a makeshift dartboard for syringe needle-based darts. Now, three hours later, 2 a.m., this is a big experiment. Two hours later, at 2 a.m., they heard an almighty bang that shook the lab, resembling like a bomb blast, and panic ensued through the fog of tiredness. What the hell was that? They eventually realized the noise had come from the bin and that the 10 p.m. experiment had actually worked. 
just with a slight delay on it. Uh, that cued 10 minutes of laughing uncontrollably and terror that they'd see the uh, flashy blue lights of the police coming to investigate the explosion. Thankfully, it seems, they got away with it. Oh, thanks again to Kay for that submission. Explosions in the lab, folks? Is that that, that commonplace? I actually know of someone that was on my degree course that obviously in your final year of uni, you get you, you obviously choose whether you do a dissertation or a lab based product project. Mm -hmm. And there was I, I don't know what they'd done, but there was a they managed to like cause a fire in the lab. And so they got moved from lab based research to a dissertation. I think, you know, a gas tap was involved or something and a oh, Bunsen. No. Um, so, yeah, I, I yeah, fire um yeah explosion i can relate i wasn't in the lab at the time obviously it was just a um, I see. I see. yeah something that kind of trickled down throughout the throughout the students but yeah very interesting i haven't dealt with explosions um but at school i did singe quite a lot of my hair off with a bunsen burner so <laughs> <laughs> never expert it's standard practice that's an, that's a rite of passage in any school course i think mm -hmm. uh but yeah, thanks again to Kay for their Lab Confidential submission and uh, we'll be reading out more each week. So please do send any confidential stories you have to our email, editors at technologynetworks.com or DM me on Twitter at RGMSci or contact any of us on our social media pages. We want your lab secrets, but in a kind of non-breaching intellectual property kind of way. Uh, but looking forward to more lab confidential stories next time. Now we'll get on to our regular opinionated science stories. And I believe, Laura, you're going to open up our account with an uh, interesting story about twitching frog legs. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about a study that was focused on regrowing amputated limbs in a particular frog species. So, um, researchers have developed a multi drug loaded bioreactor. And that can trigger the restoration of amputated limbs in the adult African clawed frog. So the study was carried out by Professor Michael Levin um, and he's the principal investigator of the Levin lab at Tufts University along with his team and they've showed in a new study that was published in Science Advances that frogs were able to regrow and remodel a missing limb um, and re restore sensory motor function as well, which I think is quite impressive. Um, so I, I guess before diving into the specifics of the study, it might be worth just taking a step back and looking at the wider significance of the work. Um, so just a bit of information for you. So the prevalence of human limb loss in the United States is expected to increase over the next 30 years um, and it's expected to affect 3.6 million people per year by 2050. Wow. Um, so that's a significant number of people. Um, and despite researchers working to find ways to regenerate whole organs and limbs, um, which obviously would benefit diabetics, war veterans, trauma survivors. Um, they currently still have very limited options um, if they do require amputation, because obviously it's such a complex process. Um, so this is kind of, you know, the reason behind the study um, on, on a broader scale. Um, and as I mentioned, they have limited options because the underlying mechanisms driving limb regrowth um, are really complex. Um, and, it, and at this stage, we don't really know the specifics of 
of you know how this happens. Levin explained to me in a recent interview that there are several different molecular players involved. Um, for example, different signaling factors and genes um, that are needed to um, for limb regrowth. Um, but at the moment, it's just a bit hazy as to what exactly is going on. Um, so if we focus back on the study and its relevance, um, up until now, most work is um, focused on limb, limb regeneration has been used using organisms with a natural ability to regrow. Um, so salamanders and flatworms. Um, and obviously, talking about translation to humans, obviously we don't have that luxury. We can't regenerate limbs, although it would be really cool if we could. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they're limited in terms of the translatable elements there. And they've had really limit, um, limited success growing new limbs in non-regenerative adult models. Um, but in this study, uh, Levin and colleagues have used a large adult animal, um, which is unique because they usually regenerate limbs very poorly, which obviously so do humans. We don't regenerate limbs. Um, so it's more translatable to humans, although a bit more mm. difficult to do. Okay. Um, so what they did, um, they wanted to see if they could trigger uh, the regeneration of a limb using a combination of drugs. Um, and these drugs um, they selected based on knowing that they have certain characteristics that promote factors involved in limb regeneration. Um, so for example, um, they promote angiogenesis, so growth of new blood vessels, um, neuron growth. Um, and they identified five different drugs. Um, I won't go into the detail of the drugs because they're quite kind of they've got very complicated names and um, they're kind of you can find more information out in the in the resources at the bottom. Um, so they picked these five drugs and they wanted to make sure that they administer these drugs to the site of the amputation. Um, and to do that, they created a bioreactor. Um, so this is like a wearable device um, and it's capable of controlling the local microenvironment around the amputation site. So, you know, they want those drugs to be exactly where they want them. Um, and it's got a controlled release mechanism, so it allows them to attach the device and release those drugs um, in a controlled manner to the site of the amputation. Um, so they loaded the bioreactor with the drugs um, and they left the bioreactor on the frog leg for 24 hours um, and then removed it. So rather than having this thing attached more permanently, they wanted to just almost trigger these processes to initiate and then remove that trigger again. And hopefully, obviously, that was enough to kickstart these processes to allow for regrowth. Um, and then once that device had been removed, they monitored the frogs for just over a year. Um, just to see how that regrowth, um, you know, how successful that regrowth was. Um, they had a controlled, it was a controlled experiment, so they had some frogs with the device with no drugs, some with the device and drugs, and then controls that didn't have either, just so that they could see, obviously, compare between the three groups. Um, and they found that after a year, the um, frogs with the device with the five drugs were able to um, regenerate the limb and it had some obviously motor function and sensory output as well, which I think is really quite impressive. Um, that so, yeah. is, so essentially they gave these frogs like a limb regrowing Fitbit to wear. Pretty much, yeah. Let it do its work for 24 hours, took it off and then left them to it. And that they were able to. Fantastic. I, 
highly recommend all of our listeners read Laura's article about this, which is, as she mentioned in the show notes, not just because of the quality of the writing, which is very high, but also because oh, there's a you. great, great picture of an African clawed frog. I don't see any claws on this frog, but no. it's a very, it's kind of an action shot. I think it seems to be, you know, in middle leap, I'd say. I mean, maybe it's a leap that it can do now because it has regrown a, a limb due to this bioreactor. Like, that's what I like to think. But, yeah, uh, potentially. But yeah, yeah it, it's it's really interesting, especially as you say the the fact that they just kind of triggered it and let the body do the rest, rather mm-hmm. than... just stimulated that process, those processes, and then left it to it. So it's not like a continu- continual kind of, you know, it didn't need inter- continual exposure. Um, and they're planning to try this strategy on other using other organisms such as mice to kind of better understand how the signals are working and triggered and how they trigger like organ building and limb building so um be worth following up um with leaven and we'll see if potentially they've done some more research in a year or so so quite exciting that is very cool Mm. look forward to hearing more Uh, well i'm happy to take our next study uh which i wrote about um last month and i think it's you know that early in the the year is going to be one of the most significant findings um, of 2022, um, I believe, within neuroscience. So uh, it essentially concerns the demyelinating neurodegenerative autoimmune. It's got a lot of adjectives: disease and multiple sclerosis. Now, researchers have known that the reason that multiple sclerosis happens is that the etiology of the disease is pretty complicated. There's no smoking gun here. During the disease process, T cells, which are and other cells within the uh, immune system that are normally responsible for protecting the body from outside insults, instead turn on the body and attack a protective sheath that coats uh, the axons that carry nerve signals within the brain. And MS, you know, as a neurogenic disease, this attack leads to a breakdown of normal neuronal signaling networks. And ultimately, it can become a, a progressive disease, which results in poor, poor communication um, between areas of the brain, which manifests in things like motor problems, slurred speech, which gradually worsens over time. And with this complicated pathology, it's no surprise that there has been tons of different items implicated in why this might happen. That some of the suggestions are that it's linked to latitude, that people at higher latitudes in the, the global north and far global south are more likely to get it. Uh, there's been tons of other things connected to, to MS's origin. But one of the connections that's kind of persisted for the longest time, despite being on the face of it a really strange idea, is that of Epstein-Barr virus, which is a, a type of herpes virus. Now, the connection has been noted that while about 95% of the population has Epstein-Barr virus, which is you know the, the, the same one that gives you, gives you uh, cold sores and, and mono, this kind of deal, um, and therefore it's pretty universal, despite 95% of the population having it, that figure rises much higher in multiple sclerosis. And it's thought about 99.5% of people with MS can test positive uh, for Epstein-Barr virus. With a commonality of the virus that high, it's proved very difficult to design a study that would enable people to work out whether or not Epstein-Barr virus was a causal role in MS until now. Now, in this study I'm about to describe, which uh, was published by researchers at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, uh, it's now been shown, I think, with a pretty substantial uh, amount of evidence here that 
MS is in fact a complication of infection by Epstein-Barr virus, which I'll call EBV from here on out. Uh, the study, which you can read in Science, uh, used to power a gargantuan data set, which was taken from two decades worth of information on US military personnel. Now, I think this is the, the, the strongest part of the study is it used this unique resource to examine this connection. And I don't think there's any other study that, that could have found the answer to this question without using a design like this. So uh, everyone that enrolls in the US military um, over the last 20, 30 years has had to submit a blood serum sample at the start and then after every two years of their service. Now that was originally designed as a way of detecting HIV, but it's been built up into a resource called the Department of Defense Serum Repository. Now that has essentially amassed a, a, a massive pile of biological data consisting of over 62 million serum samples taken from over 10 million individuals. And as senior author Alberto Ascherio told me in an interview recently, there is no comparable population to this in the world. So essentially Ascherio and his team took this resource and then uh, looked at how many people in the population had antibodies against EBV, which is essentially a, a proxy for indicating that they're infected with EBV at the, at the time of the first sample donation. In the demonstration of how ubiquitous this virus is, there was only 5.3% of individuals in the study were uninfected when they first gave their sample. Now, however, they're able to then look at that remaining percentage of the population that then went on to develop MS during their service period. So that's quite a specific combination, and it's no surprise that there were just 800 cases within that population. But for a study of this note, that's still a, a really substantial sample size. And what they noted was that 800 out of 801 MS cases occurred in individuals who had previously tested positive for Epstein-Barr virus. Now, of that group, 35 of those individuals had tested negative when they first donated, uh, but then tested positive later, and that's a process called seroconversion, which essentially implies they had become infected by Epstein-Barr virus before they then started showing MS symptoms. Now, what that means in practical terms is that becoming Epstein-Barr positive resulted in a 32-fold increase of risk in developing MS, as opposed to if you'd remained uninfected by the virus. Now, to put that in perspective, the next strongest known risk factor for MS is having a set of genes that encode for proteins that are found on the surface of certain immune cells. And people that have a particular combination of these molecules have a threefold increased risk of MS. So this is 10 times greater than any other known risk factor. Now, what I especially liked about this study was that after that finding, which is significant in itself, you know, it's, it'd be really hard to see how a confounding factor might underlie such a strong association. Uh, they still went ahead and looked for other explanations for this finding. So there's a couple of ways it could have been misinterpreted. There could be reverse causation or a confounding variable, uh, but they systematically went through and ruled out these options. For example, it's possible that you know MS has a um, long prodromal phase, meaning the disease could be affecting the immune system years before anyone notices any symptoms. Uh, and perhaps people who have, have MS but don't yet show symptoms are more likely to develop an infection such as EBV. So to rule this out, they used a tool called Viruscan, which enables the detection of any antibody raised against any protein of any of the 200 viruses roughly known to infect humans. And once they did this, the only virus that showed any significant increase 
in MS cases specifically was Epstein-Barr virus. And in my article, which I'll share again in the show notes, you can see the other efforts they put towards ruling out these other potential statistical anomalies. And ultimately, the only explanation they could conclude from the finding was that there is this causal relationship between the virus and this disease. And I think that's a, a pretty landmark finding within MS research. Um, obviously, there was the case of that one single case that uh, didn't show this relationship between Epstein-Barr virus and MS. And I asked Sherry about this, you know, does this under, undermine your findings? And he pointed out that essentially what could be happening in this case is that a single lone patient with symptoms of MS could actually be suffering from a, a different condition, for example, that has a different etiology but manifests with the, the same symptoms. And he gave the example of um, poliomyelitis. And before the polio vaccine, so roughly 99% of uh, cases of poliomyelitis were caused by poliovirus. But as he said, unless you define the disease based on the infectious agent, for any disease, there will be occasional cases that are not caused by that agent. So what this means in practice is that acute flaccid paralysis, which was you know, the, the symptoms of having poliomyelitis, uh, and that's been virtually eradicated after the success of the polio vaccination program, but it's still seen in rare cases because of other reasons. So and he says there's no reason why MS should be an exception, because even if MS is a complication of EBV, when you describe the disease clinically and radiologically, there will always be an occasional case that's due to something else. So what I think is so exciting about this study is that it raises the possibility that if we target EBV rather than the immune system, there'll be a way that this could MS could be eradicated by getting rid of uh, EBV infection. And of course, this is no small task. You know, this is a really insidious virus that it secretes itself away within uh, cells in our immune system, and it will require a lot of effort to try and create some kind of vaccine or antiviral that can target it, but at least gives researchers a target to go for, which I think is a, a big leap forward for neurodegenerative conditions. That's a cracking study methodology and also a really good explanation, Rory, because you actually answered all of the questions I was going to raise about it. I was going to say, <laughs> is there, does a vaccine currently exist for Epstein-Barr virus, do we know, or is, is it underway? So I believe uh, Moderna have one in early stage analysis. So uh, yeah, I seem to, I, I don't know if it was just timely that I noticed it a couple of days after the study came out, but I suppose people are going to start getting interested in this, but there's not one available. As I said, you know, it hides away, it hides away within B cells in the immune system. Yeah. And, you know, as anyone who's had a recurrent case of cold sores can tell you, it can be something that goes away for years, but then maybe reemerges after Lays periods dormant. of yeah. Mm -hmm. Comes back after periods of stress or something. So uh, it's going to be, you know, I think difficult to get a vaccine that can target these particular B cells that are infected. But it's always seemed to me that treatments are aiming at the immune system, our own immune system. The problem you have, of course, is that the immune system also fulfills a really useful function for us. And if you suppress the immune system or damage it to protect from one condition, you really set yourself up to have problems from other conditions as well. So um, if there's any way to be able to separate the virus from the immune system after infection, that it seems to me would be a lot more promising as a treatment. Yeah. Did they look at like the um, breakdown of like the ethnicities and things of the of the obviously because they were 
it was a huge data set. But I wonder because there's a lot of discussion about like different ethnicities and immune function, and I don't know if there'd mm -hmm. be some that would be something that I'd look into. But yeah, I I, I don't have the data in front of me, but what mm. I do remember it saying in the paper was that because they've used military personnel as a base, mm -hmm. there's quite a a wide ethnic background to the study, mm -hmm. which you might not have in this, say, a, a study that used university students mm. um, uh, from a particular location. And mm -hmm. the other thing they noted, of course, though, is that uh, you know the majority of these participants are male, um, mm -hmm. and MS majoritively affects women. So that is, I'd say, a limitation to the study. But I think it was still a substantial minority, rather than it just being you know 10, 15 percent women. It was it was higher than that. So. Mm -hmm. um, that at least gives me faith that the, the findings are, you know, as as they should be for yeah. a wider proportion of the population than, like I said, for a university study. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting study. Yeah. Now, speaking of uh, vaccines, I believe, Molly, your study you're going to tell us about looks into a, a new potential use for the mRNA technology that uh, provided some of our recent COVID vaccines. I am indeed. So the study that I am bringing to your ears in this episode is from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, um, which is sort of a renowned institute for really high tech research, novel developments and kind of drug discovery. And the work comes from two laboratories that have worked collaboratively. So it's laboratory, labra wow, I'm just going to say labs, the labs of Dr Giovanni Traverso and Professor Robert Langer. The latter we have worked with quite a lot at Technology Network, so I'm sure we can link some of our previous content in the podcast description for you guys to check out. Um, but basically, the research stems around nucleic acid therapeutics. So this is a term that's used to basically describe any nucleic acid-based approach that can modulate gene expression. So like you said, Rory, a really great example is the mRNA vaccines that a lot of us have likely had for our protection against COVID. So the mRNA is the nucleic acid that encodes the spike protein in the case of the COVID vaccines um, instructions for our bodies to effectively make these antigens and generate antibodies to. Now, the first mRNA vaccine to be approved was the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but previously there are many decades of research looking into nucleic acid therapeutics for a variety of different applications. A big one is cancer. So essentially, one of the biggest barriers to this research field has been actually delivering the therapeutic into the body. So when we think about DNA, RNA, they're very highly prone to being degradated in the body. So what that means is you kind of administer the therapeutic and it's cleared from the body within, I don't want to give an exact timeline, but it can be hours, I believe. And so this can make it really difficult to create therapies that have kind of long longevity. And so the labs of Traverso and Langer basically look at novel methods for delivering drugs. And they do this across a wide variety of kind of diseases. And particularly, they've been focusing recently on large protein-based therapeutics. Um, many of these are currently administered via injection. So to give you an example, insulin. A lot of diabetic patients have to self-inject insulin to regulate their blood sugars. Traverso and Langer want to make it easier for people to take medications, especially those that do require an injection. So for several years, they've been working on a capsule 
and it's essentially the size of a blueberry and it can be swallowed, <laughs> it can be taken orally and it contains lots of little mini needles that, that can then essentially inject the therapeutic into the gut, into the stomach. And so they've published several research studies demonstrating the efficacy and the safety of this capsule um, using monoclonal antibodies and insulin previously. But recently they turned their attention to delivering mRNA. Now, rather than simply packaging the mRNA up into the capsules and delivering it, they wanted to protect the mRNA to obviously further prevent against it being degraded by the body. So they created some novel nanoparticles and they are basically formed by complexing the mRNA with polymers. And what this does, it allows the mRNA to enter the cells of the stomach and then express the protein of interest. So it's kind of like delivering a secret message for the body to then transcribe and translate. So they assembled their capsule and their polymers with the mRNA complexed into it. So first they wanted to see if the mRNA protected by the nanoparticle would actually work being injected into the body um, and be expressed. So they didn't use the capsule in their first study. They simply injected the mRNA nanoparticle straight into the stomach of some mice. And what they look for is the expression of a protein for which the mRNA codes for. And this kind of provides an indication that the mRNA has been delivered to the cells and it has been translated. So in this initial study, they confirmed that the mRNA had been successfully delivered because the protein was expressed in the stomach and interestingly, also in the liver. So what that suggests is it's not just targeted delivery of this MR mRNA, it's actually systemic delivery because it's reaching areas outside of where the initial injection was. So that's quite a positive because this has been something that's been quite tricky, specifically with RNA nanoparticles. Um, actually getting systemic expression of the protein has previously been a barrier. And so they then decided to test their novel, we'll call it the blueberry capsule. So what they did is they packaged the RNA nanoparticles approximately 50 micrograms into each capsule. And in pig models, they administered three of the capsules. So that's a total of 150 micrograms. Um, for a bit of context there, the mRNA vaccines that many of us have had typically contain between kind of 30 to 100 micrograms. And so they delivered the mRNA using their capsules. And what they found is they used a enzyme as the reporter protein in this study with the pigs and it was called CRE recombinase. So in order to test whether the mRNA had been successfully delivered and the protein expressed, they measured the levels of this enzyme. And they did that using Western blot and immunohistochemistry. So what they found was that the enzyme CRE recombinase had been expressed in the stomach, but interestingly, not in any other organs of the body. So think back to the mice today, there were expression in the stomach and also in the liver, but this time in the mm -hmm. pigs using the delivery device, it was just in the stomach. Now, I spoke to Langer and Traverso and they said that it's highly possible that the assays used to measure the enzymes were a limitation in the research and that's why kind of systemic expression wasn't picked up. It's also important to say that the 
assays that they did use are qualitative approaches. So they don't give you fine numerical values for the amount of protein that has been expressed, but they're kind of standard methods adopted in this kind of work. Um, but regardless of the lack of systemic expression, the research today demonstrates that the system can be utilised to deliver the mRNA to the stomach successfully. So the team's next steps will be on focusing on validating the efficacy of the system in models of disease. So the pig models used in this study didn't have anything wrong with them. They weren't models of a specific disease. So the next step will be administering a specific mRNA that is targeted against a certain disease, which is being modelled in the animal and then seeing what kind of response is triggered, sort of whether it's an infectious disease model, looking at the immune response, etc. So I just thought it was a really, really interesting study because it's timely in that it looks at therapeutics. You know, we're kind of in, quote unquote, a revolution at the moment where we're seeing translation of mRNA therapeutics into the clinical space. There's still a long way to go. But I think research studies like this that demonstrate there are different avenues for delivery are really important, um, specifically, I guess, when we're considering vaccine hesitancy. You know, needles are a big factor as to why some people mm -hmm. are kind of maybe afraid to have their vaccine, etc. So I think it's quite comforting and reassuring to know that researchers are putting efforts into finding alternative methods. So, yeah, really interesting study. I'm looking forward to seeing the results from the animal models. Oh, it's, yeah, definitely fascinating, Molly. I, I do wonder all the time, actually, thinking about how mRNA-based vaccines you know, got the, the funding that was required to properly test them due to COVID. You know, thinking about how technology and the, I'm seeing so much technology springing up around them, how this probably wouldn't have happened if the, the pandemic had happened and what this kind of effort might unlock for for the future of biomedical research more widely. You know, I think sort of some vaccine sceptics have, have taken that to mean, oh, they weren't tested properly, for example, when I think what the evidence shows is that a global pandemic gave governments the impetus to provide the money needed to test them in a shorter period of time than uh, normally would have happened. And I think with, with so many obstacles, you know, we've talked about MS, we've talked even about herpes today, you know, if there's a, a real will uh, and enough funding, then things can be advanced so much and it's really exciting to see that something like uh, you know mRNA vaccines and mRNA technology could be brought to this different drug delivery system. Um, the one thing I'd say is that yeah it's disappointing to see the lack of translation between the the mouse and the pig but it you know adds adds so much more validity that you use these different models so they can see how uh, things are affected differently and it kind of highlights how difficult it is to get drugs into areas like the brain for example isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. With the brain barrier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that they did measure that. And also, I wonder if they conducted the study using different methods to actually measure expression, whether they'd have different results. Hard to say, who knows? But yeah, definitely really interesting. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Um, now, I think that's all we have time for in today's Opinionated Science, but a big thank you to both Molly and Laura for joining me and to Kay for their submission to Lab Confidential. Now we'll be back with more fascinating studies and lab secrets in our next podcast. But until then, I'd like to thank all of our listeners and please, as I've always been doing, reminding them to like, share and subscribe to this podcast. Please do keep, don't keep. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> oh, we need to get that one right. New Year. New year, new uh, new approach to telling people not to subscribe. 
please do like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. And please don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now.